Welcome to the Glenwood Table Podcast, where we are reimagining Christian faith for the 21st century. I'm one of your hosts, Emmy Arnold, and you can refer to me with she, her pronouns. At the table, we believe that one of the foundations for this Christianity for the 21st century is making space for a wide range of voices and faith journeys. We invite you to think of these as testimonies of faith rather than tests of faith. You have your own testimony too, whether that's a testimony full of faith or not. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, you can make more space for your own testimony to unfold naturally and in a way that makes sense for you and your community. I've been doing a social media series on First Presbyterian Church of Glen Cove's pages, and the past few episodes of this podcast have added voices to the written words. The series focuses on the documentary Pray Away, which highlights the reality and harm of Christian ex-LGBT ministries that have affected over 700,000 people in the United States alone. In this episode, we meet Michael Zook, a psychotherapist and social worker in Nashville, Tennessee. As Michael shares about their lifelong journey of experiencing and learning to process both religious joy and religious trauma, they define trauma and dissociation in personal and clinical ways that might ring a bell for you too. Content warnings for this episode are mentions of experiencing ex-gay theology and disordered eating habits. We hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I would love if you could start by giving us some context for who you are. My name is Michael. Um, I use he and they pronouns. I am currently a psychotherapist, trauma therapist, and social worker based in Nashville, Tennessee. However, I was born and raised into a missionary and pastor's family in Central Europe. And so that's where I grew up the first 16 years of my life and where my parents still live and where I still consider partially my home. Home is complicated. Partially my home is there. So I am full-time therapy now. I've been practicing as a social worker since 2019. So I'm curious about growing up in Central Europe. What was that like? So my my parents are evangelical missionaries. Non-denominational is probably the best way to describe it. My, my parents moved there before I was born with my two older siblings. It was a home that was very focused on faith. Everything we did was because of faith and centralized in faith. Mm-hmm. And really, in many, many beautiful ways, a lot of intentionality on in how they lived their life. Mm-hmm. And then also in some really complicating ways for me, as I came to know myself better and my own, specifically my sexual orientation, there were some ways that that world just wasn't set up for someone like me. It really was a wonderful childhood. I'm beyond grateful for my parents that they raised me there. Something they did incredibly well is that even though we were we knew we were Americans, we were pretending we weren't. They really integrated us into the culture and to the people there. And so my upbringing really was, especially for the first couple of years of my life, was very Austrian. Like went to Austrian public school, wasn't super apart, separated like some other missionaries that I've met who mm-hmm. kind of just hang out with the Americans and then kind of do work with people from the country. They really did a good job around that. I'm a third culture kid, but I also, even more so, am almost bicultural is how I think about it. There's something about kind of the familiarity with the culture there that is just part of who I am. I, too, am a TCK third culture kid, not because of missionary parents, but military family. Uh, I spent all of middle school and high school in England. I can certainly identify with that sense of being in the other world, although I was one of those people, right? We had our own little America Mm -hmm. military base. I wonder, especially being immersed in the Austrian culture, how did that change your experience of Christianity? Austrians as a whole, especially in Vienna, very cosmopolitan area, was a lot more skeptic, a lot more postmodern. Framing it that way, I think, would connect with a little bit how I view faith is a little bit more skeptical. I think I've always been a little bit more skeptical if I'm really, really honest with myself. So in some ways there's that just because 
Europe is a burnt out church state. <laughs> like the Catholic church had to hold power and state power for so long that I think people are very, very trepidatious when it comes to anything having to do with religion, anything that feels confining to them and restrictive to them. And, and so in terms of pure Austrian culture, I think that's how it is. Then when I got older, I found myself in very international circles because Vienna became more and more international and globalized. And so my friend group at one point was mostly Filipinos, South Koreans, Nigerians, and Costa Ricans. It, it was a very, very international experience. And so at that point, it, I was still in Vienna and still felt Austrian, but my experience was very, very broad and multicultural in that sense. Mm -hmm. And I would say that even more so, that, that type of diversity, the love for culture in terms of like artistic expression and just a fascination and curiosity with culture and how people express themselves and understand themselves, that really stayed with me and translated into my faith in my life. And then later on, especially in my life where I would just be so fascinated by different expressions of Christianity and eventually different expressions of faithfulness and spirituality in general. But I would say that multicultural component really has stayed with me. Like I feel most comfortable around international people, even though we may not be from the same area, I feel closest to other immigrants and third culture kids because we have this joint sense of understanding the world in a very different way. This idea of culture being almost like the air we breathe, right? And if you don't think about it, but for third culture kids, we had to be aware of how we're breathing, what air we're breathing at what times. It's almost like we have these glasses on that show us the air all around us, the culture all around us. Like, oh, I wonder how culture has impacted this expression of faith for this person. And even looking at it for my family and my extended family who didn't grow up in Europe and being able to, to see how, how has culture actually impacted it and being non-judgmental around that just being curious around, okay, what is this interplay between culture and faith? And, and why is faith to look the way it does? I love that, a curiosity around it rather than a judgment. It was easy for me to develop a judgment around it to see like mm -hmm. recognizing the way that culture was playing out in you know, my family's faith. How did that fit in with you know, the work you saw your parents doing? And I will say, right, I think now that I've grown and healed a lot mm -hmm. <laughs> from my upbringing in my own work as a trauma therapist, I've yet to meet a trauma therapist that has not been through trauma themselves, <laughs> which is why they're in the field. So yeah, there's definitely a certain amount of work I've had to do that. Yeah, definitely there was judgment and still is at times when I look at the world around me, especially here in the States where I'm just, especially being in the South too, where I'm just like, oh, <laughs> if y'all could just see, just there, there are things impacting each other here um, that are in relationship here that you're just not seeing. My parents were very intentional about their beliefs. They were very intellectual about it. Um, so there was a lot of dogma. There was a lot of theology. There was a lot of thought behind it, but also a willingness to question in some ways, at least a willingness to engage in the questioning process, I would say, of, okay, let me critically look at how faith is impacting culture. And my parents have developed even further beyond that in ways that I'm like, oh, this is super cool that you're asking these questions in, in different ways. And I think throughout time, it started more just kind of as the faith that I kind of see here and more really into a outward expression of faith, more the praxis of it. So when I was in middle school, one of the most impactful moments for my upbringing, looking back, is my mom started an organization working with survivors of sexual exploitation and trafficking. And so it wouldn't be abnormal for us to be housing someone who was in the industry, who was needing emergency shelter for a couple nights or a couple weeks. So I developed these relationships with these people who, these sex workers, these prostitutes, these people who were trafficked, I otherwise would have never met. And we developed these really close family relationships with them. And people that when I go back and visit home, I still go to see them. Starting to lean into this justice perspective of like, oh, there's a, there's a praxis to faith that is beyond just being good Christians, but mm -hmm. there is a praxis to it that is very interactive and relational with the world around it. There are societal things here that are at play. And so that really started the way I thought about it. I, looking back, I, I'm like, that makes a lot of sense given my faith now that is very much 
around praxis, sometimes to the chagrin of how I was raised, <laughs> being able to focus, okay, how are people interacting with their environment and how is that a reflection of, of their faith? That, that really stuck with me. And that's something my parents have done well and did a good job raising me with. Of course, there are blind spots there. I believe there are blind spots there, specifically around gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it also does translate into a certain level of compassion too. I mean, what I hear in what you're saying is a lot of nuance, right? To be able to mm-hmm. hold the both end of like, there were really amazing things and there were things that were missed, right? There were things that weren't in the awareness that was being held. How did you navigate that for, I mean, you mentioned, you know, your own sexuality sort of coming up against your faith. How did that play out? But looking back, I was like, ah, okay, <laughs> that's what was happening there. So whether or not this was the intention of what I received, essentially what was communicated to me in the theology I felt like was there was this very, very simplified, the spirit is good and the flesh is evil. And so I learned as one of my friends recently, he said something that just opened my eyes. I was like, oh my gosh, that is me. That, that's what happened to me. He said that the less I trusted my body, the safer I felt. Because if I trusted my body, it would lead me into sin. Mm-hmm. It would lead me into disconnection with God. Because my body was evil, unless it's within the certain context. But even then, right, there's still, we still are inherently evil and sinful. And if we let it go, take the reins, we will be gluttonous and sinful and all these blah, 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 blah things around it. And so I learned just because faith was important to me, I learned to disconnect from my body completely. And so even now I'm starting to recognize that maybe, oh, I I have a really hard time following my hunger cues. That's just something I've always really struggled with. I've always really struggled with being able to nourish myself at the right time or know how much I need. Um, sometimes I overeat, sometimes I undereat or don't even cook. And I just work all day. And then I realize at 10 PM, like, why am I hangry? Oh, it's because I haven't eaten all day. That's why. But I'm starting to make connections in my own work mm. saying, okay, this had consequences. Me disconnecting from my body had consequences for me in how my body functioned, my digestive system even, even as tangible and physical as that, even though I can't prove one-to-one that's what's happening, I do know I was completely disconnected from my experience. And so I, I have very tangible memories as a teenager having a sex dream and feeling so much shame and actively working to dissociate myself. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really aware because of that. I really was in denial and repression around that. So in many ways, I was just, I didn't even pay attention to it. And it was silent enough. I was able to manage it enough that it was silent. I didn't have to pay attention to it. And then in college, my mental health just started breaking down. Started struggling with depression and anxiety on a whole new level. Started going to really dark places. I was also a classical musician at the time studying music and music was one of the few things that was consistent for me growing up just because we did move and in the discomfort of having to come back to the states every four years for six months and like leaving people all the time music was really the thing that I excelled at and that I felt comfort in so then going to college starting to study music all of the joy of that fell away and it just became this very mechanical Mm. thing and I think my relationship with music and the arts is very integrated with my relationship with faith too and my mental health. Yeah, my body started revolting against me and said, hey, you, you're going to pay attention now. <laughs> if you're not going to pay attention to hunger cues, you're going to pay attention to you feeling miserable 24-7. That's when I first sought help from a therapist and really opened up and leaned into the community I had at the time, which was the community I, I do believe I needed at the time still very much faith-focused, and that was good. It it was a resource for me. And simultaneously, when I started asking those deeper questions, I was very, very smart with my therapist, and I was taught not to trust secular therapists. And I knew that she would ask about my romantic life, and I knew how to navigate avoiding even that conversation in my therapy with her. There was a moment where she outsmarted me in some ways and asked a question I wasn't expecting, whether that was intentional or not, I'll never know. But she asked a question around, Michael, who are you attracted to? And I was just like, who? And I completely dissociated, I'm pretty sure. I don't really have any recollection of the rest of the session. And I withdrew from therapy. 
that moment looking back was a moment where I was like, okay, <laughs> rubber's meeting the road here. And I also went to a secular university where there was so much diversity and this love for diversity that I have, this multicultural part of me was loving getting to know all these people from different parts of life and different parts of the world and their beliefs. And, their, and I was just so fascinated and energized by the people around me, including a lot of folks from the queer community. Those were really my first friends who were openly affirming of their sexuality and gender, some of them having grown up in faith traditions themselves. But I remember being very judgmental towards those people and being like, well, clearly they don't understand mm -hmm. Christianity and faith and scripture the way I do. And therefore they're actively in sin. And I, and I did really believe that. But at the same time, I had some very... <laughs> looking back, generous <laughs> queer friends at the time that were like, we're not, we're just going to ignore that part of you for your sake and still be in relationship with you because we're all aware of what's happening, even though you're not aware of what's happening right here. Yeah. So that just grew and developed throughout time. You know, what really is hitting me right now as I listen to you talk is the connection of body and mind and mm -hmm maybe we could say spirit, this sense of who you were as a person of faith. And, you know, I think about like how music plays into that, like the crucial role of music and faith communities. I think those things are often intimately connected. But then how that shows up for you in terms of depression and anxiety, in terms of dissociation. I feel like that's such a common experience for so many people who grew up with this kind of story, right? That we sort of, we learn early on what it is to dissociate, which is so sad, but it's the reality. And then- it's to maintain there, connection. Yeah. Right? And there comes a point though, where it's not sustainable. Yep. And you're right. This is a story. I work a bunch with religious trauma in my practice. Could you define dissociation? This is like knowledge that should be widely held. Dissociation, the way I understand it, is a disconnection from the self. What I mean by that is when we experience really, really difficult things, chronic stress, our minds and our bodies don't know how to process it. And so the only way we know how to is to cut that part off mm -hmm. from ourselves and push it away. And it still has the same amount of energy though. And so even though it's disconnected from our adaptive networks of how we're able to process through things, it still has all this energy. Dissociation is the fragmentation of our own experience. We say it's easier not to be in pain. So I'm going to disconnect from that part of me. All of us dissociate in some level, right? I feel like most of us have driven a car. Then two minutes later, you realize, oh, I've been driving this whole time and I've been not aware at all. I'm like, how am I, right? So there's still a level of functioning around that level of dissociation. There's also a level of dissociation around hunger cues. We, we just teach ourselves not to feel those hunger cues. So we're able to ignore it. We're able to disconnect from the discomfort that, oh, I have a body. Then there's a level of dissociation that would be very clinically significant around dissociative identity, where there's a part of ourselves that gets completely disconnected, that the other parts of us feel so powerless, they throw themselves into the ring. And that's what we think about around having dissociative identity, having formerly known as multiple personalities. That's a very, very, very severe form of dissociation. But I would say too, it's also a very understandable form of dissociation because I've yet to meet someone with that level of dissociation who hasn't had to do that to survive. The less we can stigmatize it, clinically overanalyze what dissociation is. I think TikTok is great for many things. In some ways for mental health, I think it's great. And for some ways, I really think it's not helpful because I have people coming in telling me all of the diagnoses they have. And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> like, how do I tell you? Like, no, you saw that on TikTok. And I actually don't see that happening for you, right? And I think in some forms, that is dissociation within itself too. To have to intellectualize, to have to make sense of everything, I yeah. think is a form of dissociating from the discomfort of not knowing or from the discomfort of things just being the way they are and we're not in control of them at all times. Dissociation is disconnection from ourselves in some way. I think one of the refrains I often hear when I'm speaking with people promise such a dirty word sometimes like in some ways it's like overused in culture now like everything is a trauma right like mm -hmm. I missed the bus I'm traumatized <laughs> but on the flip side there can almost be this resistance to accepting that somebody may have trauma I've experienced this in my own life but I can think especially around religious trauma mm -hmm. 
and especially thinking about like queer folks who have grown up in really conservative Christian spaces or maybe other kinds of faith spaces. But I mean, so many conversations I have, right, involve that over intellectualization of things. It feels easier and safer to go into our minds than it is to feel the pain of those experiences. One of the things that I often get feedback from my therapists multiple therapists I've had is my ability to communicate a really painful experience and show no emotion about it. How would you define trauma for people? So I'll give you the official definition, and then I'll give you my clinical opinion. Trauma, according to SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, event, a series of events, or a set of circumstances that overwhelm a person's ability to cope and make sense of the event that happened to them. And I think it's really important that we have set of circumstances in there because that leaves room for some systemic trauma. There's always things happening around a person, some relationship with the environment that is contributing or not contributing in some way. Trauma is also what didn't happen to you, but should have. And trauma is also something that was just so overwhelming and you did not have the resources to cope with it. There can be things that we do to ourselves that can be traumatic. I recently got trained in somatic and attachment-focused EMDR, which is a type of trauma reprocessing. And the way she framed it was, our nervous system remembers anything less than nurturing. And all, when she said that, I got chills. And I was like, oh, no, that means I have so much more to work through. Mm-hmm, right. Not at the fault of the people around me, right? And that this mm-hmm. happens in friendships and communities and schools and institutions and anything less than nurturing, our nervous system is going to respond to because evolutionarily we're wired to take an information, remember it, and resist putting ourselves in a threatening situation again. So it makes sense. Probably the number one thing I get from my clients, especially my adult clients coming in, they're like, I don't think I have trauma. And I'm like, okay, but I advertise as a trauma therapist. What drew you to me? (laughs) Right? Like there's, I work for a place called the National Center for Trauma. You came here for a reason. And so let's explore that. And people don't, a lot of times are scared to use that word because they don't want to minimize the experiences of others. Big T's that we think of, abuse, neglect, that kind of thing, assault. And at the same time, if we're not able to reckon with the fact that we have things in our nervous system that were less than nurturing that have caused us to have a negative belief about ourselves, because in order to maintain connection with those things that are most important to us, we have to blame ourselves essentially, especially when we're kids, right? Kids are inherently ego-driven. And what that means is kids are inherently just focused on their own world. They cannot conceptualize other minds around them and how other people understand. So when they have a stressful or horrible experience with someone who's supposed to be a caring guide or is sometimes a caring guide, sometimes not, or they say something that is really hurtful to them and is usually great otherwise, what's going to happen is they're not going to be able to make sense of that. So what they do is they blame themselves. Those negative beliefs we carry with us, essentially, we're always constantly trying to prove ourselves right because of our negative bias and our cognition that we're saying, okay, here's the negative belief I have about myself. I'm too much. That was mine. I'm being overdramatic. So literally every time I have a friend that looks at me funny when I start getting dancey, or if I do anything, or if I wear something that's a little bit too flashy and I realize that someone's staring at me, there's a part of me sometimes that's like, take that, haha. But there's another part of me that's like, "Mm, I am too much, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm proving that first belief, right? And so when we talk about trauma, we need to think about, I have my DSM, my diagnostic manual, complicated political book that we're all trained to use in social work and counseling school. And the thing is, our diagnostic manual does not encompass that level of trauma unless it's PTSD. And PTSD was developed for veterans for a very specific presentation of trauma. And there's active resistance to include other presentations of trauma in the DSM. Because Mm -hmm. if we as a medical industry would be okay with that, all of a sudden, all other diagnoses change and are contextualized. Mm -hmm. And then we have to change our insurance system, right? (laughs) And then people would be able to access care. And so it's the systemic piece. 
I was just talking to a psychiatric nurse practitioner the other day, and she had just come from a trauma training. And the trainer was talking about how for her, she thinks that anxiety is usually a trauma response, that it's not like some isolated, you're not just like anxious, like you're anxious because of past experiences that have taught you to be anxious about (laughs) X, Y, or Z. There's something there to think about it under the lens of how is it adaptive? How has it been adaptive? In my perfect world, we wouldn't need diagnoses. We would say for mental health, how does this response make sense, right? And there are some things that are biological, right? And genetic and and those kind of things, we can work with those. And I feel like the vast majority of responses that we think are socially unacceptable or not comfortable are adaptive things that we've had to go through. I mean, people are so shocked when I tell them things that they're like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) this is a well-oiled machine at this point. Like the church in certain contexts knows what to communicate so that they don't have to deal with the fact that there will be people in their congregation who are sexual and gender minorities. We're in every community, every society throughout all of time. We will always show up. We are <laughs> like, we are a pest in that way that it does not matter what you try to do. We will always show up again in our own families, in our own communities. We will show up. That is not by our own choosing. It is just how the world works and the beauty of it too. And I think one of the really challenging things about being like a gender and sexual minority is oftentimes, most of the time, you're not born into a family of other gender and sexual minorities. Like your family may have other minority statuses, but oftentimes that status is not shared by your immediate context. And so you're forced to navigate the world feeling alone. What kind of world can we build where that is different, it's informed about this reality that minority expression is often isolated. I mean, I think things are changing, right? We're seeing so much more mm-hmm. representation in the media, for instance. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like little kids can be like, oh, I feel like that person too. At least in our context, in the American context, that piece of around community and feeling so lonely. So I kind of laugh at myself when people ask about my coming out journey, because I'm like, I have had every one of them. <laughs> like, that's what it feels like. Because I started, right, complete repression, completely in denial. And then after this mental health spell, early on in college, I moved into more ex-gay world where I said, hey, I do have this and I can actively work and pray enough and do these things and read the Bible enough that it will go away. And I wasn't officially involved in any official like Exodus International Conferences or any conversion therapy groups. However, I did have several people in my life where we would have conversations and I would be downloading Exodus International materials from their website. Even though I wasn't actively involved in Exodus, I was very familiar with their materials in that world. And so in that way, it it was a conversion practice on my end, right? It was my own attempt at converging my own sexual orientation and reparative therapy. And so there was this engagement with it in that sense. And so at one point I felt like I'd managed it. It was gone. I even told people, I'm like, I'm healed, I'm healed, and and had this whole excitement about that. Started dating a girl who was wonderful and is wonderful, and realized six months after, I was like, no, (laughs) it's not, this is not going to work out. And I'm so grateful that I was in tune enough with myself that I wasn't dissociating, Mm -hmm. and partially because I was worried for her. I was like, I don't want her to be in pain Mm -hmm. because of whatever happens to me. I ended up breaking off with her, and I was like, I don't know what to do with this, right? And that's when I was introduced to what we consider in the queer theology community a side B, this idea that someone can be celibate. They can identify as gay and they can understand their sexuality as being attracted to the same gender. In some ways, that is a gift, right? It allows you to be available to do God's work as a single person. But in other ways, it's still inherently evil and bad and sinful. And any act upon or willingness to engage with the bodily experience of that queerness is still bad. That was the world I started in and I have a lot of appreciation because it did tell me the beauty of singleness, the work that a lot of side B folks are doing. And I know side B folks who I really do believe are called to a life of celibacy, where really that is their vocational calling for themselves. And, and I think that's wonderful. And I've learned a lot from them and how we idolize marriage and how that's not even in a faith tradition wise, how that has evolved into the culture. We see this American dream version of it that we have now. 
still my body was still actively working against me in the Mm -hmm. sense that like you're still not able to relate to people the way you need to I think there's a hypersexualization of sexual orientation and gender Mm. and what I mean by that is there's a relational component to that that is beyond just what genitals I like to be around I as a 13 year old boy I was able to have deep intimate relationships with my female classmates even though I was the only boy in my entire school that would cross (laughs) the gender line, (laughs) right? I'm wired to connect with people. The fact that I don't have potential of wanting to be intimate, physically intimate with someone, that's going to change how I relate to them. And that's going to allow for an intimacy to grow. What I started realizing was it wasn't just me needing to be abstinent. That was what this was asking, what celibacy was asking me to do. It wasn't just to be abstinent. It was asking me to cut off how I related to people. It's relationality. Sexuality is relationality. And if we say you can't relate to people in a certain way, that's neurobiologically how we're wired to connect and find safety and regulate our emotions. Like there are a lot of things that have to do with our ability to stay in community with people. My sense is if a person knows, and I have no judgment for clients who decide they want to explore all different avenues of what that can look like. And I also believe that the body knows at the end of the day, if they're so actively struggling that they cannot be present in their life the way they want to be, the body is telling them something. That is really what opened once I became affirming of myself. Could you not within 24 hours, a lot of my physical symptoms dissipated. The chronic pain I was experiencing, the depression, anxiety. I'm not saying that's how it works for everyone. For me, it just shows me how much I was holding on and how at the surface this pain and this tension was that allowing myself to then become affirming in the context of my community, who I was very grateful had evolved to around this topic. My immediate friend group and the Mm. people around me have already become affirming in their own way. And so when I came out to them, there wasn't a threat of disconnection Mm. with them. That I didn't have that. It would have been more difficult, but I found that once I let my body just breathe <laughs> and I wasn't actively trying to moralize how my body felt about things and just allow myself to be in my body, starting that relationship really from scratch, from mm-hmm. whatever, probably my seven-year-old self that had to disconnect from the fact that he loved twirling in dresses in our costume box and our little cowgirl dress, allowing myself to rekindle that relationship with my body again and that's really been my journey and it's been slow since then (laughs) in some ways it's the healing journey I'm like all right I have all this knowledge right but the problem is I can't use the same tools that I used before the tools I need to use is using my body this more somatic experience of the world I still when I'm nervous and anxious I go up into my head I Mm. everything is cerebral right everything is up here intellectualized I intellectualize my pain a lot And so the work I have to do with my therapist, and I laugh at this because every time they call me out on it, I'm just like, oh, why are you so right about this? Where they're like, (laughs) your thinking self is popping in right now. You just need to be right now. And I'm like, (laughs) you're right. I do. It's been a journey for sure. And so when people ask me for my coming out, it is is difficult. And I came out to my larger community a couple of years after that to mixed reviews as to be expected. But overall, I feel... I do feel that my relationships, even people that disagreed with me, some people who really disagreed with me, our relationship was strong enough to still be okay with being in community with each other in some way. And even though the relationship changed for sure, and they, we both understood that we weren't going to be our primary supports anymore because of this or secondary, whatever. Like we can still trust that the other person is on their own journey. That was probably the most powerful thing. I had a friend who grew up in the South that I went to college with, and we were all part of the same Bible studies. And this wasn't part of his story at all, this gender sexuality piece, but very, very Southern, just naturally. And I remember talking to him on the phone and no, like feeling like I knew what he was going to say and him just surprising me being like, you know where I stand on this, but I also trust you in your faith and your relationship with God. So I'm going to take you at your word for that. And I remember being like walking on campus during grad school, being like, (laughs) being so like the wind knocked out of me being like, oh, wow. Okay. So there, there is a way to be in relationship still, but it does require that trust in me and in my faith and my journey, which has to be a offering. Yeah. It's a huge gift that somebody can do that. 
I come from a Southern context too. And that was not a gift I received from a lot of people. I mean, I remember there was this almost pity from a lot of people yeah. when I came out, right? That I had lost connection with God, that I had mm -hmm. lost my way. It, that was the automatic assumption. And certainly not all people. Some people did offer me that gift of they knew me and they trusted me and they trusted that I was on my journey and a very interesting dynamic to experience with people and how people navigate you in a different way, right? When they learn something new, even though it's like, I'm still me, right? It's not <laughs> right. like we have changed. Yes. Changed yeah. the way we relate to ourselves, right? Uh -huh. but, Indeed. And I laugh too, because I think all of us can have memories where like, I'm still me. Like, mm -hmm. I love musical theater and danced in certain clothing and like I was always that kid yeah. and yeah. so like are we shocked <laughs> like is yeah. anyone shocked when it came right. out I was like I hope the answer is no yeah. and that's not to say all these things equate this and at the same time if one really knew me I think one would not be surprised that I did come out as queer I mean I often make a distinction and when I think about coming out to people I was like I'll say something like well they had some shock in the moment, but they weren't surprised. Like there's that initial like, oh my God. And then it's like, well, okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So another thing that I hear is body, right? The way that bodies get talked about in religious or faith spaces, the way that we learn to relate to our bodies in those spaces, especially conservative Christian contexts. And then this past Sunday at church, we talked about embodied practices. We actually were in a circle and somebody led us in this like practice ritual that they do every morning. They call it the dragon dance, but it's sort of like, it's kind of yoga-esque, just you're moving your body, you know, you're like taking in like breaths and breathing out and you know, touching the ground and recognizing your connection to the earth. But it's, it's very much like I'm here, I'm a body. I exist, mm -hmm. I can move, I can breathe. I asked people at the end, like, what was that like, you know? And people talked about joy and connecting mm -hmm. to their body. And I asked, what do you usually feel when you come to church about your body? What does your body do in church? And a lot of people said, you know, I just feel like my body is like a receptacle. I come and I sit in a pew and mm -hmm. people feed me something and I leave. Uh -huh. A brain right. transportation vehicle. Yes, mm -hmm. that's one of the other phrases someone said. My body is just a vehicle for my brain. I think the American culture in some ways is very much a reaction to that lack of embodiment. And I think that is sometimes what creates our over-sexualization of things because we weren't aware of our bodies and we're trying to find the balance there. I mean, I imagine as a trauma therapist that you're doing a lot of work around body and connecting to body you talked about your own work around your connection to your body and I wonder like how did you come to those conclusions what was it that helped you recognize that you needed a connection with your body you know I don't know the exact moment but I know some precipitating mm. events for one of my college internship I ended up working with a nonprofit organization that was focused on training people to use the arts in response to traumatic stress. Flew out to the West Coast where they were located for the summer and my supervisor for the intern project and then I ended up working for them for a bit. She is still one of my absolute favorite people in the world. And she's also multicultural. Born in Southeast Asia, but grew up in South Africa and then moved to the States. Her relationship with her body was very different than mine, having just grown up in Western Central Europe and the United States, which was very, <laughs> very Western in that sense. She's a therapist as well. And I remember us leading these trainings and her doing body-based dance movement exercises. And the thing is, I was a dancer when I was in middle school. Like I was part of a dance group. I loved it. It was the only way that I felt like I could move my body in a way that wasn't like super competitive in a way that I didn't automatically feel judged by other people. I'm still trying to figure out like how my dissociation worked with my dance too, or if that was just like a reprieve for a moment, because they definitely coexisted at the same time. Mm -hmm. I remember us doing these body-based activities that felt so silly. And the idea of being playful as an adult is just, I mean, this is something I have to work on with my clients when they're not kids. It's just like, when was the last time you were playful? 
there was so much resistance in me to participate in this activity that I was technically co-leading because it felt too risky. It felt too vulnerable. Then I did risk it and it was fun. <laughs> and I actually enjoyed myself and I connected with the group in a new way. And at the same time with body awareness, as many folks who have some kind of dysphoria, specific in gender and body dysphoria, know that having an increased awareness of the body doesn't always feel good, doesn't always bring joy. I had both of those feelings at the same time of this like invigorated, I am connecting with people on a new level and a, ooh, ooh, <laughs> just that feeling I had around it of like, I have limbs and I have fingers and fingernails and like, that's weird and feeling, yeah, just being hyper aware of my body in some ways that I think I needed to get to that willingness to be uncomfortable with my body before I could move forward. Mm. But I remember being held in that context so well, being able to connect with people and being able to name some of the discomfort I felt with my body in that space and it being accepted and being like, yeah, many of us have different iterations of this, right? We don't have your experience, but we have different iterations of that experience. And I, that's where I developed the language around trauma and trauma research. And I was doing research with them. That's really what set me on my path. Ended up going to social work school to become a trauma therapist. That's really what started it was this really relational piece. And I would say I come and go as it relates with my relationship with my body. There are times where I'm doing a lot better with it. Like I just started playing mandolin for the first time. Mm -hmm. And my teacher is an Irish mandolin player and she teaches it only orally. She doesn't give you sheet music, which as a classical musician, I'm like, I need sheet music because I need to know exactly what you expect of me so I can do it right. But for her to be like, nope, you can just get a slow downer app, use the MP3, you'll figure it out. Trust your body. And I'm just like, <laughs> but how can I trust my body? But like doing, playing this mandolin for whatever reason is what's connecting me with my body right now. We call it joyful movement in the trauma world, being able to connect with your body in a way that feels good. It's pushing us in many ways. And for some people that's working out in sports. And I think that's great. I know for me, Going on a strenuous hike is probably as far as I can push my body before it starts to get to that point of, of starting to get panicky. And maybe that's my own work I need to continue. But playing mandolin now is kind of where my embodied practice is. But before that, I had six months to a year where I realized I was completely dissociative in my head, that every time something challenging would happen, I would go into my head rather than going on a walk at the park two minutes from my house or going to yoga or dancing in my car doing a shoulder dance. And this is something I talked about a client recently. I was like, all right, we're gonna practice. They're very uncomfortable in their body. I was like, but do you have a favorite song right now? And they're like, yeah, it's this song. I was like, all right, I want you to dance to it. And they're like, what? And I was like, yeah, I want you to dance to it. And they're like, I'm not gonna do that. I was like, all right, can you dance to it in your car by yourself? And they're like, okay, maybe a little bit. I was like, all right, we can, we can just start with the shoulders, right? And so it's me and this client in the room just like doing a shoulder dance, like pretending we have a steering wheel. And I was like, we're going to practice this together. So it, you get the weirdness feeling out of it. So that when you get in your car after this, you're able to turn on that song and just do a shoulder dance. It comes and goes, my awareness of it. And then I intellectualize the body piece and then I have to be sucked back into it. An ever growing journey and relationship like any relationship is. And I love thinking about it as not such a like binary, like I'm in touch or I'm not in touch with my body, but a recognition that at one point you were not very in touch and now you're moving towards mm -hmm. that work of getting in touch, right? That it's an ongoing process. And I also wonder, you know, how much of that binary thinking comes from our faith tradition of like, you're in sin or you're not in sin, you know, you're right with God or you're not right with God. For me, I noticed like a lot of self-policing around this, like I'm right or I'm wrong, I'm in or I'm not. Finding that space for spectrum and growth mm -hmm. and compassion. And relationship. Relationship. And relationship takes time. I'm 28 now. It took me 27 years to get to a point where I am even aware when dissociation is happening, right? And I've, I've done a lot of work since then. I'd say about six years of really intense work of me being aware of where I am now. It's going to take more than a year for me to develop the relationship with my body that I hope to have. And especially with religious trauma. Like I know for myself, I still, even though I wish I could, I still cannot open the Bible. It does not matter where in the Bible. I, I see those little numbers next to the, mm -hmm. the paragraphs and I go, 
right? Yeah. And I just get so out of my ability to regulate myself. That's something I grieve. There are many parts of scripture that are beautiful. I wish I could read it. And so that's work I have to do, but it shows that it's more than church hurt, right? And I, I hear this pushback now that like, oh, all these millennials or, or whoever, they're just struggling with church hurt. Church hurt has always been here, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, sure, but there's a difference between hurt, getting hurt, getting scraping your knee yes. and then having someone try to rip out your heart. Yes. So we have to reestablish, and that's work I have to do, right? That I fall outside of my window of tolerance a lot when it comes to religion, which challenges how I practice my spirituality and my faith, because mm. there are some places that I am not yet able to go, even though I wish I could, and maybe I won't ever. And that's okay. And I think there's grace and there's space for that. My trauma professor, like her big thing around trauma was that there are ongoing effects in a person's life as a result of trauma. And that's one of the big keys to what makes something traumatic. You know, that two people can experience the exact same event and one person is just a scraped knee and the other person for years, decades. Yeah. And maybe it doesn't even happen right away that they feel those things mm -hmm. and it takes time. Mm -hmm. But at some point, they find that they can no longer sustain the level of functioning around certain things that they yeah. did before. And I think especially when we think about church, trauma-informed church, how can mm. we create that space, right? Or trauma-informed religion in general. Church can be one of the most harmful spaces for people. Yeah. The language, I have long left my conservative, I come from a Pentecostal context, but now I'm in, you know, the mainline church world. Mm -hmm. Presbyterians, United Church mm -hmm. of Christ, they love to be the liberal mainline denomination, and yet so often our our language can still be very damning and shaming it can still sort of hold that for me like coming from the background that i come from i hear yeah. that language and i'm like oh no like i don't want to be here anymore which is challenging as a pastor <laughs> I bet, yeah <laughs> like carry religious trauma and work and religious <sighs> contexts but i think a trauma-informed lens does give us that compassion to recognize, you know what? We don't have to do this. We don't have to do it this way. We can recognize people are at different places. There's a reason people are responding. You know, one of the things that I hear so much in just everyday talk is like, I don't understand why they acted that way. When we are trauma-informed, it's not as if we have to intellectually understand, but we can understand emotionally. There's probably a reason why they acted that way, even if they don't know it. I mean, I don't know why I act the way I do half the time. I have to sit and process and like, sit with myself. There's reasons that I'm acting this way. Mm -hmm. And so I think just being able to make space for that and to say, I don't understand and I don't have to understand to be compassionate. Mm. That reminds me of the Henry Nowen quote <laughs> of being able to go to the places with people and not have to do anything just being able to go with places with people that that's what compassion is so i wonder what does your faith look like now it changes a lot but i think the underlying consistencies that are there is that it's some form of creative medium the structure of the scriptures even though a lot of it is poetry the way it was taught to me was not as poetry can we just be curious and playful around some of this? Yeah. I think it's the process of this that is so much more important to me right now than what is actually underneath that all. And that's really complicated because as soon as you go into many church spaces, they're going to be looking for, okay, but what does this mean? So that I can store it in my intellectual brain and in my cognitive brain. And so I know how to move on from here. But I think there's just such beauty in being able to engage with it in, in different ways. And sometimes my faith life consists of just me listening to music, like secular music. I, I do love that distinction between secular and Christian music. I think there's a lot of overlap there. But sometimes it just looks like that. And sometimes it looks like me playing my mandolin. And it looks a lot like me being in relationship with people and communicating about faith. That's the one place where I do hold myself accountable to say, I don't really care what conclusions I come to in this season of life around this. My commitment to myself and where I need accountability is for my friends to ask me about it because it would be easier for me to just completely disconnect. 
And at the same time, faith, spirituality, my spirit is just as much a part of me as the sexuality piece. Mm -hmm. And so I can't dissociate from the spiritual piece either because that's also who I am. So I need accountability in the same ways that I have accountability about other mental health stuff and physical health stuff and all these things. And so faith is a lot more loose. And at times that gives me anxiety. And that's partially just because I am comparing myself to what I used to know, but holding it all loosely and much more dearly. For me, I was taught that to hold something dearly was to, you know, hold it tightly and not, (laughs) you know, don't let it go. But there is a sense in which really to hold something dearly is to recognize it for what it is and not make it what we want it to be or think it has to be, but allow it to be whatever it will be. You know, I think about when God says to Moses, I am who I am, or another way to translate it is I will be who I will be. Mm. How can you contain that being? That being will be whatever it will be. And if we allow that process to unfold, then we get to be on a journey with that process. Well, thank you. This has been a joy. It's energizing for me to tap into that in a way that I haven't in a little bit. Thanks for holding space. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Glenwood Table podcast. We're grateful that Michael shared part of their story, as well as such helpful definitions of trauma and dissociation. If you believe that you could benefit from talking to someone along your own journey, you can Google LGBT affirming therapists in my area, or use filters when searching on psychologytoday.com. You can always reach out to us as well on our Glenwood Table Instagram and Facebook pages. If you want to listen to the entirety of the interview, you can check out our YouTube channel where we post the whole recording. We can be found by searching Glenwood Table on youtube.com. If you would like to connect with us on social media, We can be found on Facebook and Instagram as Glenwood Table. For more queer affirmation and information, make sure to check out the social media series about the documentary Pray Away on First Presbyterian Church of Glen Cove's Facebook and Instagram pages. And make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss our upcoming episodes. Until we meet again, we offer you this blessing. You are loved and you are enough. God loves and likes you just the way you are, and so do we. May you feel these truths in your very bones. Amen.